All right. Well, welcome, friends, to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. And I'm excited to bring your guest, uh, bring to you this conversation with my guest. I'm your host, Eric Nevins. And with us today is the host of the Reboots podcast, Tracy Winchell. Tracy, welcome to Halfway There. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me. I, I really like what you're doing here. I Thank you. I appreciate that. And I, I'm interested in all kinds of things about you and your story. Uh, but tell us what you're doing with the Reboots podcast, first of all. Well, the Reboots podcast uh, has been in existence for a year and a few months. Uh, I just posted my 28th episode, which happens to be my reboot story, which is a recovery story. Um, I've, I've been doing a couple of episodes a month and I've scaled back this summer to one episode a month, at least for a while. And the stories are about people who have been forced to start over in life or in business, either through no fault of their own or through their own missteps. We alternate between um, business and creativity stories. And then, um, we do a whole lot of recovery stories like mine. And then we also do some just life and faith, uh, stories as well. So I try to keep that, um, broad parameter because I welcome all faiths and no faiths. And I'm interested in all sorts of stories. Yeah. Yeah. So it's turnarounds and rebounds. Right. Yeah. I love that. And there's a lot of uh, redemption and value in in hearing that other people have gone through things and they've been successful to come out of it. Yeah, it is straight up Viktor Frankl all the way. <laughs> right, and you're referring to his book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, right? Yes. 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 All right. Okay, I'm going to put that in the show notes. Uh, just so, friends, if you're listening and you're interested in Viktor Frankl, you haven't heard of it, uh, you should read that book. All right. Um, Tracy, so thanks for sharing that with us. Tell us a little bit about um, yourself. So let's start out with, you know, I know that you came to Christ pretty young in life. Tell us that story. Tell us what it was like, kind of your life, um, you know, as, as a kid. I grew up in a very normal household. I'm, I'm one of those blessed few. And I, I, for a long time, I used that as, um, a way to beat myself up. You know, I've had a normal childhood. I've had a blessed childhood. And, um, my response to that would always be, I don't have any excuses. I can't afford to screw up. Mm. Um, because my life was really good. Um, I've got great parents. Uh, and I went to a church of Christ on Sundays. And when I was in fourth grade, my folks put me in a private school and it was a, a fundamentalist Baptist school. And there were, there were looking back, I see there were some very unhealthy things going on. Um, some of my friends, uh, were children of teachers and administration. Most were fabulous, wonderful human beings. Some though were sick and, um, it was not a, 
really emotionally healthy place to be for a lot of people. I managed to do well there to sort of slough off some of the 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 rigorous legalism, but I did buy into a lot of that uh, legalism for a long time. And mm. and in fourth grade, uh, during a chapel service, uh, I finally bought into this whole thing about Jesus and how he loves me. I had heard so many times uh, in that same chapel that I needed to be afraid of God. And for whatever reason, that one day um, in fourth grade, I, I knew that I wanted a relationship with God and Jesus Christ. And I was one of those kids who raised my hand, sitting right next to my friend Angela. Um, and I the most vivid thing I remember about that moment is looking at her hands crossed because in fourth grade, uh, she had very long fingernails for a kid in fourth grade, you mm -hmm. know, and she's still uh, a, a friend and we keep in touch every so often. But um, that's when I knew that I wanted a relationship with God. And that was one of those moments where I crossed the line from being um, on the Church of Christ side of things because uh, – in the Church of Christ faith uh, side of the the the, the Christianity faith, uh, baptism is a requirement for salvation, and that's when I finally quit wrestling with, well, is it or isn't it? I knew that baptism was uh, an act of obedience, and right there is when I decided, no, I don't think this is a requirement. Now I still struggled with that for a long time, mm. um, but. I knew that I just really didn't want to wait anymore for a conversation with uh, my folks and the pastor and and to come down the aisle and be baptized. I knew I wanted what I wanted right there. Oh, wow. So were you baptized right then? No. I was baptized uh, in my 30s, in fact. Oh, okay. In a Baptist church. Uh, well, they dunk everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that sounds like a story. What so what led to that? We can we can jump around a little bit here. Um or maybe maybe we should go through. I don't know. You tell me. You know your story. You know, I'm fine with going there. I I I still struggle with that sometimes just because I don't I don't know why. I'm I'm not really honestly satisfied with that baptism. Again, I I felt I felt safe in my relationship with God. But I also felt rebellious because I know what's in the scripture and I know it is an act of obedience at best. And maybe there's just this little piece of me that mm. for a long time wanted that insurance. Yeah. So right? that's interesting. So you mentioned that your church was maybe a little legalistic. And so maybe some of that My early. School. Oh, your school. school. I'm sorry, your school. Yeah. yeah. That's right. But uh, But you got this teaching about about um, baptism from your church. And so you kind of had that in the back of your mind mm -hmm. like the whole time. So you were kind of holding out saying, mm -hmm. ah, I don't, I don't think I need that. And see, I also didn't want to be baptized because other people expected of it, expected yeah. it of me. I wanted to be obedient because I wanted to be obedient. And, you know, like I said, even at an early age, I realized, wait a minute, on Sunday mornings, I'm taught that unless I'm in this church and unless I believe exactly this, then I'm not going to heaven. But wait a minute. I have some really good friends and some 
wonderful teachers who love me and I know they love God, I don't buy that they're going to hell. Yeah. That's interesting. And so get this, Eric. Um, I haven't attended a Church of Christ for a, a very long time. And now, uh, skipping for, way forward, um, since January 1st, I have been helping with a brand new Celebrate Recovery launch at my mom's church, which is a local Church of Christ. And I spend every Monday night with between 40 and 65 wow. uh, women and men of the Church of Christ faith, and we talk about God and Jesus. And guess what? They have asked me to teach occasionally, and, I, and I've and i taught two lessons, and I've got two more coming up for sure. We just rotate through there. Yeah. And so God just has this incredible sense of humor, I think, and he is healing me from whatever this whole rift is about baptism and why it has taken me so long. I, you asked me a really direct question about tell me that story, and I'm still trying to figure that story out. I, I don't, mm. I don't know. Were there other things that you learned early on there? Uh, you know, whether it was when you were still in elementary school or older, um, that kind of shaped your your faith and your experience of God. Yeah, some bad stuff, really. Um, I. I just knew that um, the death penalty was the right thing to do. By golly, I knew um, I knew a lot of um, a fundamental type uh, things about punishment and God's wrath and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and a few years later, I sort of stumbled uh, into a career as a journalist a broadcast television journalist. And, um, I always wanted to be in television, but I found myself saying, okay, I'll give this two years. And, um, the more pain that I saw in life, I had had a privileged life. It was, you know, the, the classic white privilege that we talk about today. We weren't rich, you know, we were lower middle class, but I never wanted for a meal. I never wanted for clothes on my back. And as a journalist, um, I began to see some things that disturbed me. And life wasn't as black and white as I I, I thought it was. Yeah. Yeah, because so you you got this early teaching about God's wrath, and that that gives you one impression about right and wrong and, and black and white. But then you find out, oh, no, the world is actually a lot more gray. There's other reasons for things that maybe I didn't understand or you didn't understand from yeah from your upbringing. Yeah. And and years later, I I actually covered the first execution in the state of Arkansas uh, in in 25 years. This was in the 90s, and it happened to have been the very last. Uh, electrocution in the state of Arkansas. A guy had killed a Fort Smith, Arkansas police officer uh, where I still, uh, I live just outside Fort Smith. It's in Western Arkansas. So we covered that. I wasn't around uh, when the murder occurred, uh, but being on that, in that prison farm and watching that hearse leave, I did not witness the execution, but we drew lots. We journalists drew lots to see who went in and I didn't want to put my name in, but that would be a total 
non-pro move, right? Yeah, wow. So my thoughts about capital punishment changed. Um, I'm not necessarily um, anti-capital punishment, but it is not nearly the slam dunk that it was in my life. Yeah. At, uh, you know, just life changes us. Yeah, it does. You know what? So since we're talking about this, I'll just tell you my my view and my evolution on it. Because I'm very, very much like you grew up very conservative, very, um, you know, hey, right is right, wrong is wrong. And if you do something wrong that deserves death, then you should get it. And the state should, should do that. Um, but somewhere in the early 2000s, and I forget what precipitated this. I don't, I don't actually even know, but I just started thinking about it and thinking about in terms of, um, the, the whole thing of life, right? So we, when we talk about abortion, we get very animated about choosing life. And then we talk about punishment and we don't have the same response. And for me, that just was not acceptable. I just decided I I would always rather choose life even if, and so as a, as a political conservative, I had to say, even if this is going to cost money, taxpayer money to house a person that does otherwise would deserve death, will give them life in prison. Um, then that's what that takes. And that's, that's fine. It's okay. Uh, so I would just rather be a person who's always standing up and giving people more chances, second chances every day to, to find Christ. You know, that's, that's, important to me. So that's kind of how I, that's, that was my journey on it. And I, you know, so I can totally understand where that's. Yeah. So are we going to be consistent on life? I I think we should be. I agree. (laughs) That's my deal. Um, I just think it makes more sense. And I think it actually is more kingdom like. Yes. That's a good way of putting that. That's my, uh, my two cents on that. Anyway, that's interesting. Well, so maybe our friends have other opinions and they'll reach out and let us know what those are. And isn't that awesome that we can disagree on things like that in love and not decide that the other person who disagrees with us is going to hell? Right. Right. Yeah, I think that's a good thing. Um, So you mentioned that you ended up in journalism and you stumbled onto it. How'd that happen? (laughs) (laughs) So... I in my in my senior yearbook, uh, my scripture verse was John fifteen sixteen and seventeen. You've gone, or uh, you were chosen to go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, and all of that. And the evolution of my my take on all of that has changed too. I thought that meant I was chosen. Well, it does mean I'm chosen, but it also means that sometimes I'm going to have to be pruned and endure hardship. So that scripture was on my um, my senior picture. I graduated with 15 other people in this small school. Um, The next thing I said is that I was going to be in television. That was what I was going to do. And I set out to do that. And um, I got an internship at a local television station in Little Rock where where I grew up. Um, And after a year and a half, I was also working for a radio station. and I was messing around and the the guy said, you got a great voice. You just need to lose that accent. And they put me on the air and I was throwing up on the, you know, 
on on these Saturday morning shifts where nobody was listening in between, yeah. you know, spinning the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. And uh, just I just had a cold compress on the back of my neck the whole time. I didn't tell anybody but my parents. And one of our anchor anchor friends heard me one day. They figured out it was me. It's the only time in my life I've ever used a fake last name. <laughs> And, and she started teasing me about it. And I didn't really like her at the time because, you know, she's an anchor and she was, uh, her name recognition was, uh, uh, second only to Bill Clinton in the eighties. And of course at oh, that yeah. time, Bill Clinton was the governor. I mean, she was something. I just wasn't going to like her. I just wasn't. I liked everybody else. And she called me out on it one day. Anyway, we got to be friends and she and another co-anchor, uh, Bob Vernon, who is now deceased, um, kind of started saying, you know, this, this went on for two or three years. Um, you're getting ready to graduate. What are you going to do? You, you, you don't want to be behind a camera for the rest of your life, do you? Well, it's fun. Yeah, but you don't make any money. So they said, you've got a great voice. You're bright. You really need to go on air. So they got me a meeting with the general manager of the station. Uh, and at the time ownership owned three stations, one in Little Rock, one in El Paso, Texas, one in Meridian, Mississippi. So I went upstairs and talked to the guy and he says, I, uh, why are you here? Well, because Carolyn and Bob said I needed to come see you. Um, and they told me I'm supposed to ask you for an on-air job. Uh, I see. Well, you're not going to start here. It's a top 50 market. So would you like to go to El Paso or Meridian, Mississippi? And Honest to goodness, my response was a question, well, which one is closer to Arkansas? Mm. <laughs> and it was Meridian, Mississippi, and um, within three months, I had a job lined up, and I was in Meridian, Mississippi for 16 months, three weeks, and four days before <laughs> I got back to Arkansas. And that's <laughs> one of my regrets uh. is I was arrogant, and I knew everything, and the general manager down there had to take me because he was told to, and I was a jerk and I made some lifelong friends down there and I wish I hadn't been a jerk to them and they love me anyway. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's a great story. It's a true story. That That's amazing. So you, so you ended up doing that and you were there for a little while. What was, so is that, was that the first time you were away from home? Oh yes. Yeah. Only time really. Really? Uh, I I couldn't wait to get back to Arkansas. And, you know, when I did move back, I moved to uh, here to western Arkansas. I moved to, to Fayetteville and spent a year there and moved south here to Fort Smith. My folks eventually joined me from, from Little Rock. Um, I just, I love it here. Yeah, that's your home. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I've been to Little Rock one time, and the best thing we did was eat at a Waffle House. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I was a kid. <laughs> Okay, so you did that. So that kind of got you started on the air. What was your spiritual life like during that time? Uh, it, it got increasingly less important in my life. Mm -hmm. It was incredibly important in school. And somewhere along the way, um, it just faded. Um, and and I, I ask myself pretty often, what was that? Was it a little bit of notoriety? Was it being away from home? I, I, I don't know. I can't answer that question. Yeah. That's interesting. Was it, was it kind of being, you know, 
kind of out, like you said, out on your own, you were kind of kind of made it and maybe you didn't need God anymore. Yeah. I think that's a, that's very possible. I'm not ready to sure. point that and say for certain that's what it is, but I know that it was a contributing factor. Yeah. Really interesting. Okay. Well, so when you, so then you came back to Arkansas, mm-hmm. what'd you do then? Uh, I was on the air for, uh, with a, another television station and it was so much fun to be covering politics, um, in my home state, because ever since I was a little girl, um, I read the paper in the afternoons getting prepared for my dad to come home. He thought I was going to be a a lawyer. And so we argued at the supper table and and (laughs) I didn't have assignments. I mean, he wasn't a jerk about it. I was, I just wanted to be ready to, to argue with him. And as soon as I convinced him that I was right, he'd flip sides on me. And so, um, (laughs) It was really fun to um, to cover Arkansas politics during that time because Bill Clinton, I, I covered the, the presidential campaign and whether you're wow. an R or a D or somewhere in between, it was really exciting to know that that guy I talked to all the time um, was running for president. And uh, I was in Little Rock on election night uh, watching all of that unfold and it was it was exciting times wow yeah so what was the mood we don't have to get too political i'm no big fan of bill clinton but what what was the uh what was the atmosphere like Like, i want to know what the what what do people in arkansas think about um pretty mixed i mean my folks were not fans of his just a funny story uh he was I think I've got this right. He was first elected in 78, I think, because he went to attorney general. He was elected in 78. Uh, At that point, we had two-year terms for Arkansas governor. This guy named Frank White came in, and and, uh, he was a really good guy, but kind of had the reputation for being a little bit bungling and not very articulate uh, up against uh, Bill Clinton, you know, the the orator. So he runs against him. after Clinton's first term and he wins. And I will never forget my, 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 I woke up and I come to the table and my dad's reading the paper at breakfast and he's just shaking his head. And I'm like, what? He says, this is horrible. I just meant to send the boy a message about car tags and Cubans. And I'll be darned if I didn't elect Frank White. I didn't mean to do that. (sighs) So for two years, we put up with Frank White, reelected Clinton, and then um, he was uh, governor up until uh, he ran for president in 92. Yeah. Wow. So did they have, they had two-year terms? They they did until 90, I believe, was the first four-year term. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. But then was there no, um, that's really interesting. So he actually had to campaign quite a bit. Oh, yeah. Oh, that makes so much sense. I had no idea that was a thing. Yeah. That- the only time he's ever lost an election was in 1974 uh, in the Western District of Arkansas. John Paul Hammerschmidt spanked him. And Hammerschmidt was in an office for many, many, many years in the Third District uh, uh, Congress. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. fascinating. It makes some sense, right? That, right. You know, you, you get good at the things you practice. So if you have to practice yeah. more often. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. 
that's political. Yeah. We don't yeah. have to talk about that. That's, I want to talk more about you, but I kind of became a political junkie the day Bill Clinton was uh, elected president. Really? Like the day after. So my mom uh, and my, my parents were always kind of big Rush Limbaugh fans. And so I remember, I can't remember, I was out of school for some reason and we were listening to Rush Limbaugh going somewhere and, uh, and he was just, you know, morose cause he was not happy, but, Oh, but he made a lot of oh, money. Totally did. No elected, joke. Right? right. He makes money either way, but it was, uh, anyway, it was kind of, I don't know, for whatever reason, that's when I caught the bug, but he's also one of the broadcasters that I really admire and look at. I think between him and Larry King, I look at you know, whatever you think of either one of those guys, they, they both say the same thing about doing interviews, which I kind of said to you earlier is you just follow your curiosity and do what you're interested in and, and uh, everything will turn out fine. If people, other people find that interesting and then you'll have an audience. Yeah, but, you're right. Anyway, I don't really listen to, listen to them much anymore. My politics have changed a good deal, but me too. <laughs> it's interesting, right? Well, that's yeah. part of how we grow. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So, Okay, so you're doing this. So during all this time, are you still what what is your life like and then are you still kind of just like God and, and Jesus is sort of on the on the side there or what was what was that like? Yeah. Um I was busy. I mean, worked a lot, worked nighttime, um uh expended a uh, you know, worked weekends, ex- worked holidays. Uh, I loved uh, traveling back and forth to Little Rock, spending time with my family. I still had grandparents alive across the state, um, worked really hard to spend time with them. I, I'm an only child, but I have a huge extended family, and I adore my aunts and uncles and my cousins. So um, every opportunity I got, I, I spent time with them. Um, I the, the friend who got me into television actually – help or onto television, the, the, the anchor that I said, I didn't like her very much. And okay, I'll finally give this a two year trial. She got me the job in Fayetteville because she and her husband were moving to Fort Smith. And so we, she became my sister and one of my best friends and my mentors. And we are friends to this day. I, mm. I had the privilege last July of introducing her into um, uh, the Emmy Ring of Honor, the Midwestern Emmy Ring of Honor. Wow. So uh, it's a really important friendship. And so as uh, she had a little girl uh, at the time and then uh, had twins during that era, and I spent a lot of time changing diapers and playing My Little Pony and, mm-hmm. and hanging out and being sort of an honorary aunt to those kids. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, so that was fun. That's good. Okay. So you, so it sounds like your faith life was just kind of off on the side. What? Yeah, it was in and out. Uh, my friend and I had a lot of uh, faith discussion. She was a seeker at that time and I would be in and out of church. I knew that a church of Christ wasn't for me. I knew the Baptist faith wasn't for me. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. It just I'd never felt comfortable in those churches. And so uh, for a while I went to a Methodist church and I loved the liturgy. Um, I loved the the uh, greater emphasis on grace and beauty and truth and love. 
And um, so I was in and out of uh, that church for a long time. When I could, I would go to church on Sundays there. And yeah, yeah. What What eventually brought you back? Crisis. Mm. Tell us that um, story. Uh, the 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 loss of a, a relationship that uh, became something different. Um, a, a close friend. Um, and I don't want to go into a whole lot of details with that just to protect him because it turns out we're friends again. Um, it was a, it was a bad idea. Uh, I thought that that was kind of going to be, um, the opportunity to settle down and have kids and it wasn't. And, um, it ended very badly. And for a long time we couldn't speak. Uh, I felt, um, I felt betrayed, um, and I don't know, uh, we have repaired that relationship and he is now a very, very close friend. And so as a result, I, I, you know, I, I want to be careful to, to sure. tread lightly here, That's okay. but it was, it, it threw me into a really bad medical state. Um, mm-hmm. my first bout with diagnosed depression, um, and, um, it was a, interestingly enough, that didn't kick in for about three years. I was diagnosed two or three years later. I, I came down with pneumonia, um, was sick for um, two months. I was unable to work. And by that time, I'd moved on to uh, financial services because that's the next logical progression from from journalism, right? <laughs> right. right. Um, but uh, that was the first time I had ever had to deal with um, life not going my way. Yeah. And, um, I tried to just kind of brush past it. And about two years later, um, you know, after we got me back on my feet from pneumonia, uh, I had a really wonderful doctor who is now deceased, um, uh, who said, you know, he just walked me through all of this. What is going on? And, um, he, he's the kind of doctor who, uh, who gives me stuff to read. He, he gave me, um, an assignment to read The Lies We Believe by Chris Thurman was the first exposure I had ever had to this notion that that God is not necessarily who we say he is in our heads. Yeah, that's interesting. We lie to ourselves a lot, and we say God wants me to do that, and pretty often it's a lie. So he had me read this, um, and Shortly thereafter, um, he let me know that, uh, oh, by the way, besides being diagnosed with asthma, um, you're, you're prematurely about to go into menopause. And so the opportunity for having kids is probably gone. I have Uh a lot of friends these days who deal with infertility and they mourn the lack of, of, of a family. Uh, they didn't want to be single. Well, I didn't either. Um, but for whatever reason, with all of that other stuff going on in my life at that time, um, I just kind of put that one behind me. I was like, uh, okay, well, that's not gonna happen. And so I moved on. Uh, one of the, I am, I am in recovery, uh, celebrate recovery for unresolved grief. Um, and, um, interestingly enough, uh, the, um, loss of, 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 uh, the expectation that I would have a family and children, 
that that's not even on my list anymore. I've got a big list of list of things that I grieve. But yeah. That's not it. That's interesting. Isn't that weird? Yeah. That's a that's a pretty big one. But you know, I found my way back to God during that time. Yeah. And and I craved that relationship with him. Unfortunately, I still had a bunch of leftovers um, of who I thought God was, and I still wasn't treating people today, treating people well. In fact, today um, I saw a post from a friend from that era, and uh, it's something big happening in his life, and and uh, there was this thread of conversation that kind of prompted me to say, you know what, I, I didn't always believe in him. Um, so I just kind of reached out to him. This was like a, you know, uh, an amend that I didn't see coming um, mm. as part of my recovery. And because yeah. I thought, you know, I remember that time when 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 I just, just I embraced God, but I still didn't get that right. And I still didn't treat people well. And I just sent him a, a quick note and just said, you know, I know you know that I'm different from who I was, um, but I just want you to know that I I regret that person I was when we knew each other in the, in, in the 90s. And uh, um, I'm really glad that you have people in your life who never stopped believing in you. And I just, you know, you keep being a good dad and you keep doing what you're doing. I'm really proud of you. What I got back from him was, I'm scratching my bald head because I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> right. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, God is in and out of my life, but I'm still not quite getting him right. And I'm finally at a point in my life, Eric, where I can say I'm probably never going to get my relationship with God perfectly right this side of heaven. Sure, of course. That's sort of the idea behind halfway there, right? Like that, exactly. We're we're never gonna be all the way there. We're never gonna get, you know, to the to wherever there is that we never seem to be able to define. But uh, you know what's important to me now that wasn't important to me then. The first thing is, I actually care about being kind to other people. I yeah. actually want to do that. And the second thing is. I don't ever want to be an obstacle to someone else who may be seeking God. I don't want to be that person that I feel like I used to be, who uh, the the person seeking God, God says, well, if Tracy's all about God, I don't want none of that. Yeah. I don't want to be that person anymore. Yeah. So what did you make of that with your friend? Uh, I'm kind of just chuckling a little bit and I'm, I'm reminded that for me, recovery is a process of sanctification. Recovery, recovery is about the Beatitudes. It is a system that God, that Jesus taught us to live and that he lived. And so my job is to work the system and what that helps me do is it helps me get the lies out of my head, the junk out of my head that I've picked up all along the way saying I'm not good enough or I was a horrible human being back there uh, in the 90s. Apparently, according to my friend, that's not entirely true yeah. because he hadn't thought anything of it. And so 
the amend was not for for my relationship with him. The amend was for my relationship with God mm. and my my self-talk to say, you right. know, I'm not as bad as I think I am. Yeah. And maybe I am worthy of a walk with Christ. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's so interesting. I've been thinking about this a lot lately about, you know, we sometimes the way I grew up, the talking about the self, we always put the self last, you know, it's God, other self or Jesus, other self. You've probably seen, seen that. Um, and it strikes me that that is so actually untrue. And it, it takes the human person um, not seriously enough. And it doesn't take into the account that you actually have a relationship with yourself. You know, I have a relationship with myself. And so how I understand who I am is actually one of the things that helps us grow. And so I hear you describing that, like as you're, as you're going through this process, you're understanding yourself in a new way. And so you have to say, ah, I didn't like when I was like that. Um, and then other people experience you differently. And so that's a whole different thing, but you had to kind of wrestle with your own self and your own, you, like you mentioned self-talk. That's such a huge thing, man. If you can get that, if you can get that right and be kind to yourself in your self-talk man, it's a life changer. I'll take that a step further, my brother. All right. Of the 30 some odd people I have interviewed about their life, faith, recovery reboots, their entrepreneurship reboots. Um, you know, I've, I've put 28 out there in the wild. And when I ask them, you know, what is required to navigate a reboot? How did you get past this? Um, inevitably, they talk about the importance of telling yourself the truth about who you are, your relationship to the world. Um, you know, Ryan Holiday in, um, uh, oh, what is his, oh, The Obstacle is the Way. Um, uh, this line jumped off the page when I read it. He says, um, uh, we have to understand that the world at, uh, the world is at best indifferent to us. Right. Right. I don't, you know, that's kind of not my thing. Uh, the world, the world doesn't revolve around me. And so, um, this whole self image and this self talk thing is critical. And there was a time in my life before recovery when I, I thought I just needed God in me, but community right. fits into that whole self-talk thing, the right community. And so right. people who are navigating a reboot, the people who have already navigated that, um, have just, this is an aggregate of what they have taught me. Um, they've, they've said that we have to understand our relationship with God and the universe. So if you're a stoic, you know, you, you think, well, uh, the world doesn't really care about me. They're indifferent to me. If you're a believer like we are um, and we have accepted Christ, um, we have to go all in on, um, what is it, Isaiah 118, um, where uh, this is a key principle in um, step four of Celebrate Recovery. Come now, let us settle the matter Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Eric, we're mm. already there. Yeah. 
the 12 steps of recovery are about beginning to see us as God sees us. Right. And so that's a big part of that self-image and that self-talk, just like what happened with, with my friend today and making the amend that he was like, what are you talking about? So this all fits together in the importance of community, having a, a, a group of people who model the love of Jesus Christ Eric, that saved my life at Celebrate Recovery, and it's so important to me that now um, 40% of my um, weeknights are filled with recovery meeting. Wow. So those are the three three of the four things that are important for navigating a successful reboot, and they all fit together. Yeah, right. Uh, Well, so how did you end up at Celebrate Recovery? Can you tell us that story and how that, why that means so much to you? My dad died, and at the time, I thought I was the only human being on the planet whose 80-year-old dad had ever died. (laughs) And I know that sounds ridiculous, but I believed that. And I wanted what I wanted, which was my dad back and everything the way it was. Um, I didn't process grief well. I didn't care that my mom was hurting or that... Um, other close friends who loved my dad were hurting. And after knocking around for a year and just, you know, making a mess of relationships and things, um, I, I, I finally walked into a recovery meeting and I worked the step four, which is take a, a, a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And I started back at the very beginning and I realized, oh my gosh, I never processed grief well. I never processed loss well at all. You know, step back into the the relationship that I thought was going to bring me a family. I grieved the loss of that relationship poorly, but the ramifications of that, I don't know, somehow I slid by. Maybe it's maybe it was self-preservation. Yeah. Um but my first year of recovery helped me understand um, that the death of my dad is not what landed me in recovery. That was the catalyst right. that helped me just go, I can't deal with this anymore. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting sometimes when that happens, the, the moment that we think is the one that changes our life really just reveals our life. You That's know? a really good way of putting that. And you, and so it sounds like you figured out, wow, I've actually, grief has been a thing that I've been dealing with for a long time and you had to finally face it and, and get honest about it. Yeah. And, and, you know, people think, well, I'm, I'm so open about being in recovery and I have been from, from the very beginning. And, you know, that's that there, there's such a stigma attached to that. I have, I have cousins, first cousins who have said, gosh, Tracy, you mind if I, you mind if I ask you, uh, what drug are you addicted to? (laughs) Right. And, and there was a time when I, I kind of felt like, gosh, I don't want people to think I'm a drug addict. And now I'm at the point where, my gosh, the safest place I can go is to be in a room full of people who are, you know, between 20 and 40 percent um, addicted to something, mm-hmm. whether whether it's pornography or sex or, or chemicals. Yeah. That's the safest place I can be because they're honest with themselves. And I love being in that community of believers who say, 
I am messed up and I'm not afraid to admit it because there are no games there. And my friends who are addicted to a chemical, they work their recovery programs like their lives depend on it because it does. Right. I want to take my recovery that seriously because for me, it's about my relationship with Christ. I mean a real no kidding relationship. Put all of that stuff that other people have told me God is aside and yeah. let God and me figure it out for ourselves within the parameters of Scripture. I'm all over that. Can you tell us just a little bit about what Celebrate Recovery is? Because it's possible that some of the people listening haven't ever heard of it. And so, you know, it's obviously been a huge part of your life. Tell us tell us kind of what it is and, and maybe tell us why that really helped you. I'd love to do that. I'd be honored. Um, I, I have the privilege of leading 101 at Two Celebrate Recoveries pretty often. And we just, we just walk people through um, – how this came about. Uh, uh, John Baker is the founder of Celebrate Recovery, and um, his marriage was breaking up, and he decided he had an alcohol problem and needed to go to Alcoholics Anonymous, and he worked his program for a long time, repaired his marriage, um, decided to start going to church with his family, a little church you may have heard of called uh, Saddleback Church <laughs> with yeah. Rick Warren. Yeah. And he never felt really comfortable in at, in Alcoholics Anonymous because with AA, it's all about a higher power. When he said his higher power was Jesus Christ, um, there were enough people who kind of uh, scoffed at that, that he just never felt comfortable. And yet he also knew that some of the same people he was seeing in church on Sundays were the same people he was seeing in AA only none of them felt comfortable talking about their addiction in their small groups. Right. Right. So you're supposed to be open on Sundays about your spiritual struggles and yet you're not sharing this deepest, darkest secret. So he started kind of working on a, a single spaced, um, 13 page plan to bring Christ into recovery, got permission to use the 12 steps from Alcoholics Anonymous, um, put a letter in the, the, the letter in the mail to Rick Warren. Rick Warren reads it, calls him, says, come in here. We need to talk. Um, tell me more about this. And, and uh, he and his wife, Cheryl, worked on this for a long time. And um, so they have this conversation and John uh, uh, Rick Warren says, this is a great plan. Go with it. Run it. So they start having small group meetings. It just so happens they had some help from Henry Cloud and John Townsend, who wrote the book Boundaries. Yeah. And Cloud and Townsend show up every single year for two Celebrate Recovery summits, um, one on the East Coast that was just finished, one on the West Coast. And they talk to them about the science of recovery as well as the spirituality of recovery. All this program is, we work the 12 steps. We have eight principles that are based on the Beatitudes. So if you read the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn, um, you know, you go through all of that. And this is a system. And when uh, Celebrate Recovery is all about people with hurts, hangups, and habits. And again, a, somewhere between 20 to 40% of people in recovery are, are dealing with some sort of an addiction. The rest of us are dealing with um, life struggles. 
um, relationship issues, uh, uh, food issues, um, in my case, um, grief. My current struggle is perfectionism. So these are character defects that keep us from living life to the fullest. It's all about the serenity prayer. And when you think about this, you know, Jesus didn't have habits or hangups, but don't you reckon he had some pretty severe hurts? He was in a relationship with a guy he knew was going to betray him, and mm-hmm. yet he treated him with love. How did he do that? The Beatitudes. Yeah. And so that's all Celebrate Recovery is. It's a systemized way to work scripture and the teachings of Jesus. And oh, by the way, there's a step in there for what happens when we screw up, like I did with my friend today. I screwed up 20 years ago and I had an opportunity to make an amend. Mm -hmm. And so when I realized there's a step in there for when I screw up, now I don't have to be quite so hard on myself. Yeah, I love that. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think there's a lot of us who... so really this applies to everybody, whether or not we're at a place where we're ready to to dig into it and get honest about who we are and what we're doing. Recovery um, is about anyone who wants it. Yeah. It's not for those who need it. It's those who wants it. And we have people coming through the doors all the time. I'm here because um, my husband's an alcoholic. And so they come to support their husband and then they realize, oh my gosh, I've got a bunch of stuff to work on too. Right. Tell, tell us why you started your podcast, because that's, that's uh, also an interesting story. I was a few years into my recovery journey, and, um, you know, if, if you think life gets better because of recovery, um, that's not <laughs> always right. Life still happens. And right. a couple of years into my recovery journey, um, um, I, I lost my job, um, and I had done very well. It's a high profile position. By this time I'd moved on to a uh, local government and it was a, a high profile position. Um, and, uh, I had a, an opportunity be, to be part of some big, huge, wonderful, high profile projects. But after 12 years, um, uh, the, the elected officials wanted to go a different direction. And, um, uh, there was a, a change in, in, um, uh, government managers. And, um, it was time for a whole bunch of us senior managers to go. And I was one of them. And so I sold my house. Uh, I'd been in that house for 20 years and I thought I was going to die in it, you know? Um, and I've let it go and there's been no grief with that. It's, uh, and I think that's a, a God thing. I moved in with my mom I started a consulting business um, with all my years of communication and public relations. I thought that would be a thing to do, and it was kind of picking up okay. And then a very close friend died. Uh, for me, it was it was suddenly. And um, so that was a gut punch after I, you know, I was kind of emotionally getting out of the hospital. But I, uh, I was I knew that I wanted to do a podcast. I knew I wanted to do something related to recovery. I sat in a in it at an East Coast summit and listened to Henry Cloud and John Townsend talk about um, recovery, and I knew they were teaching the same thing at Fortune 100 companies and making a whole lot of money. You know, recovery and leadership—it's all the same stuff, Eric. And I also knew that. I wanted my podcast to incorporate all of those things. 
As part of Celebrate Recovery, we do a lesson every week that takes us through the 12 steps, and in alternating weeks, we share our stories. What I found through listening to the stories is that I found hope in people who were struggling with things that even I was struggling with. You mean I'm not the only one whose 80-year-old dad has died? Right. I'm not the only one who has ever struggled with profound grief and loss? Wow. And I I knew I wanted to to tell stories. And so I – a friend of mine who is, I don't know if you're into Christian heavy metal, <laughs> but there's a band called Living Sacrifice, and it's got a cult following. One of my friends is uh, the longtime bassist for that band, and he's like a cult hero. We were having lunch one day, and it's, it was years before I ever knew this. We were having lunch one day, and um, we were talking about uh, podcast ideas, and, and we kicked the idea around, uh, what about reboots? And he designed the artwork for me, and I started trying to figure out how to launch a podcast. And he was my very first interview, and he was a recent interview uh, celebrating uh, our first anniversary because uh, he's very much the co-creator. And um, he he has encouraged me to um, welcome all faiths and no faiths and to also share entrepreneurship stories. And he's so right, Eric, because the same stuff that helps us navigate um, business reboots is the same stuff that helps us navigate spiritual reboots. Right. It's awesome. Yeah, it it is interesting. Okay. I'm trying to think of how I want to say that, but it's something, there's something very human about that, right? About the need to start over. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all do it at one time or another. Right. Right. Well, I think that's a great service to just share those stories and I'm glad you're doing it. Well, thanks. Um, I, you, go ahead. Well, I was going to say you also, you have uh, something I understand that you want to share with our friends listening to kind of help them get through that. Yeah. Um, it, there's a, there's a, a really short quiz and then um, it's a compilation of, of the learnings that I was talking about um, earlier this year as I celebrated the first anniversary of podcasting. Um, I asked a lot of people. I synthesized uh, the stories uh, that are already in the library. Um, and so I just kind of compiled those things. You know, we've talked about um, three of the things, uh, understanding our relationship with God and the universe, self-image and self-talk, community, and then the why questions that we ask. Um, I've synthesized all of that. Um, and what you said is exactly right, Eric. We all go through a reboot. So I wanted to put together a tool that synthesizes all of the learnings from all of the people that I've talked to about their reboots and also kind of assesses um, even if you're in a good spot, if you're if you're not in the middle of a reboot, um, what can you do to get ready for a reboot? Because um, mm. it's coming, yeah, right, right. You know it's coming, and so uh, it kind of dives in just a little bit into um, your relationship with other people, the self talk that you 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 tell yourself, um, where you see yourself in your relationship with God. And which why questions you ask, um, are they the healthy ones or the ones that are going to kill us? Um, so I just put that together and, um, it's really easy to get to, uh, rebootspodcast.com forward slash halfway there. 
Perfect. That's again, rebootspodcast.com forward slash halfway there. Yeah. So I kind of look at it as, as a, uh, an assessment, uh, what's in your rucksack. And if, if uh, these tools aren't in your rucksack for your journey, um, uh, maybe a couple of insights as to, to how to, how to gather up the, the necessary tools to navigate a reboot along your journey. So I'm hoping to, um, I'm planning to uh, write some more uh, uh, that dives into those those specifics as we go forward. I, I feel like I've I found a thing that I'm I'm really pretty good at after having navigated my own reboot for the past five years and and asking a lot of people about their reboots. I'm not an expert yet, but I've I've learned a lot the last year. Yeah, that's fantastic, uh, and I love that you're sharing what you've learned already. So I think that's that's really good. Uh, Tracy, thanks a lot for sharing your story and being here with us. And I, I'm glad that uh, we've connected and we got a chance to do it. Friends, you can get, uh, I want to just reiterate this. You can get this uh, free quiz at rebootspodcast.com slash halfway there. As always, there is a link to Tracy, her website, um, all of the books that she mentioned and the reboot gear guide at uh, halfwaytherepodcast.com on the show notes. So don't forget to go check that out. Um, Tracy, thanks again for being here. Appreciate it. I'm really proud of what you're doing and I'm excited to, um, to, uh, share your work with, um, my tribe. Um, we're doing good work together in, in a really intelligent way. And, uh, I think that's important these days. Thank you, my brother. Thank you. Thank you.